Thank you, David. That uh, hymn has become one of my very famous favorites. Uh, William Cowper wrote that hymn a long time ago. I don't think uh, William would have ever have envisioned that it would have had that kind of music attached to that poem. But it is. It you actually feel uh, Emmanuel heal us. Before we read the, the scripture, I do want to thank. Uh, a number of servants in our church who for more than 40 years have uh, gotten together on Monday mornings to uh, uh, count uh, your offering. They are retiring. You can imagine after doing it for 40 years, you deserve a retirement plan. But I do want to mention their names and obviously they, they attend three different services. Uh, when you see them in the halls or at some other time, please uh, extend your gratitude. I don't know many people who do the same thing for 40 years. Uh, Tom Ross, who uh, uh, often is at our 11 o'clock service, and Ruth Ann Klein, who's often at our 8 o'clock, uh, Floyd Gilkey, who's at every service. <laughs> Jim Ferguson, who's teaching Sunday school right now, but uh, obviously attends the 11. Uh, Gene Crooks, I can't remember, Gene, are you at the 915? There you are. He's at 9.15. And then uh, Lois, uh, Lewis, uh, Lewis and uh, Jeff uh, Morris have moved away, but for years uh, they were here and part of our family and served in that capacity. Uh, please thank them when you get a chance. That's a great service to our church. That really helps the folks in the office on Tuesday morning to get all that deposited and taken care of. One of the neat things about a generous church is there's uh, lots to count. All right, I'm going to read uh, from John's Gospel, chapter uh, 19. If you'll find your, your way there, or you can just follow along on the screens, or if you have a device that can get you there quicker, that's great too. We're in the middle of the chapter, so the context is Jesus has already been arrested. He was tried before Pilate. Pilate didn't find anything wrong with him, but convicted him anyway because he needed the peace. And he's about to turn him over to be crucified, executed. So that's where we pick up in verse 16. So he, Pilate, delivered him, Jesus, over to them, the, those that carried out the crucifixion, to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. 
So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross, Jesus, where his mo- was his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, just Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put it on a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. One of the hardest things about preaching a text like this it is so familiar. It's not just familiar to people who attend church all the time. It's familiar to people who don't ever attend church. The crucifixion of Jesus. So how do you talk about these kinds of things in a way in which people can hear it? Because when things become really, really common, it's hard to hear it. And it's hard to hear the force of it. So I'm going to try to do that now. But we need to pray. To ask him to do that for us. Father, we come into your presence and we know that we bear before you now. We want to hear you. We want to hear what you have for us to hear. We want to know that you came for this reason. To finish something. Help us understand what you finished. How to apply that to our lives how to apply that to the lives of people we love, how to be a community where it is finished. Give me courage and strength to say that what needs to be said, in Jesus' name, amen. John has been telling us for some time now why he came, why Jesus came. He came because we were hurting. He came because mankind was in pain. He came because that needed to be revealed to us. He came because he needed to show us where the source of that pain comes from. But the main reason he came is to heal that pain. I just want you so much to know that Jesus didn't come to condemn you. John's already stated it. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn you, but to save you. I wish we would have that verse instead of 316. It's just 317. For God did not send his own son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And all he leaves for us, and this is why this word finished matters, is that we're to live into it. We're to lean into it instead of away from it. Or to say that we've got it. It's there. It's, it's finished, finished. I don't have to go. I can go beyond that. In reality, there's nothing beyond that. There's nothing that matters more than that. That it is finished. But the truth is, he can't really 
let us know what has been finished until we know we need what he finished. Which is another way of saying he has to reveal to us our hurt. It has to be brought in a way into the light. I've always kind of viewed that verse where it says that Jesus is bringing things into the light. More of an exposure of guilt. That's not really all that it means. It certainly at least means there are things that have gone on in the darkness, things that are there in the darkness, that when light comes into darkness, it exposes what is already there. Just so I don't lose my way, if I could give you three words to hold on to that I hope to get back to, it's fear, shame, and guilt. Okay? You hold on to that and hopefully I won't get too far from it. I didn't so much. I mean, this is my second time. So I'm trying to make it through. My mom's 80th birthday is about three weeks away. And my sisters has decided that we would have a family reunion of the kids. And we were all going to go out to her home. My family doesn't get together, except for funerals. That's the last time we were together. It was my dad's funeral. So I'm not looking forward. My mom listens to this. If there's a way that we don't make this public, because I don't want to hurt her. That's not my goal. Because I'm not mad at her. But my mom after my dad uh, left the home and really left the family completely, he was about 10 years old, 11 years old. One of the things that he did when he left was he bought a set of encyclopedias, and I had them for the longest time. I took them even to college, but after a while, they kind of get outdated. And certainly now I can find anything on the Internet faster than anybody can find in an encyclopedia. But as I have kind of told this story... I've always left part of the story out. This is the, this is the shame. You know, when my dad bought those encyclopedias and walked out of our family, it's all that I really had of him. And so I would sit in my room and read the encyclopedias. I'm great at trivia. What I left out of the story is the room is dark and I'm reading by a flashlight hoping that no one would know I'm there. Because my mom had remarried and she remarried, uh, she married a man that um, named Jim. He's long dead. Can't be really mad at him anymore. But he's an incredibly violent human being. And it almost happened immediately in the family. You go from having no children to having five children and all at different ages and having all of our own issues of our own father not in the home. So we began to uh, uh, beat all of us, sometimes for good reason, sometimes for no reason at all. And so one of the ways I dealt with that was I retreated into my room to read. I retreated and hoped he would never see me. 
One of the things that, um, that's the fear. One of the things that that did is, in my family, it was not healthy to ever be wrong. And because I couldn't be wrong, I knew I was wrong. I just became really good at hiding it, of being wrong. Because it wasn't like being wrong when I was a little kid, when my dad was in the house. He just dealt with it and we just all moved on. But in this case, somebody had to pay. It's one of the reasons why this idea of he who snitches gets stitches really matters to me. You never told on your brother and sister because you knew that they would pay a heavy price. I had a sister who ran away when she was about 14, 15 years old, and we never knew why. Until we all got together and she began to tell her own stories. I have two sisters, and both were terribly abused by this man. You know, when you can't be wrong, it can't be fun to be around somebody like that. It can't be fun to be on staff with someone who's your boss who's never wrong. Or a pastor. I remember I began to tell this story for the very first time a year ago. And it was to a group of pastors that I've been meeting with for years. We're all pastors of large churches. And so we tend to have similar experiences. And we decided that year that we were going to tell our life stories. We'd already told our testimonies, but we have never told our life stories. And so this is, I was one of the first ones. And so I thought, well, this might be a safe place. And so I began to tell this story of, of fear, literally hiding in a dark room with books and terrible shame. Because one of the things that happened is the very first time I told this story was 40 years after it happened, which means I didn't tell anybody. And so the first thing, one of the, I really like this group is that after you tell your story, they begin to comment on your story. So obviously the whole three days are just people hearing your story and then commenting on your story. It takes a while to get through 15 stories. One of them said this. He said, you know, one of them's a, a long-term friend of mine, been a friend for more than 20 years. He said, I never knew that. I would have never guessed it. Well, I said, well, here's the reason why you would never guess it. It's because I have to look this way. I've always had to look this way. I've always had to be the guy in my family who protected everyone else. My shame is, or the guilt that I experience, is that when I got to be 16 years old, I left. I went to go live with a friend. It just was too unbearable, but I left behind younger brothers and sisters. So it's not a lot of fun to see them face to face because you just remember you left them. But when I told them the story, one of them said, you know, have you told your congregation? I thought that was the weirdest question in the world to say. Why didn't you say, have you told your wife? I hadn't told her in 32 years. Why would I tell a congregation that only been pastoring for 10? Why didn't you tell a counselor? That would have been a thing I would have said. And told one of them either. 
Why do I tell you that story? It's not because I want you to know. Obviously, for 40 years, I didn't tell anybody. Therefore, I don't want anybody to know. That's part of the shame. I thought literally I could take it and put it in a box and lock that box and never go there again, thinking that in no way had it impacted who I am, that it somehow had shaped my identity. And it had. In difficult ways. I love the name of this 15 pastors. After this meeting, we came up with a nickname for us. We call ourselves the Island of Misfit Toys. (laughs) Because it was really interesting. As soon as I told this story, 12 of the other 14 had the same story or very similar. Isn't it interesting that pastors of the largest churches in the PCA have a similar experience? I should tell you something or nothing. Well, why do I tell you? It's not because I want you to know. Because if I had my way, I'd go to my grave. I tell you because, and I think this is what he meant by have you told the congregation. In a lot of ways, this can be very academic for me. And therefore, it becomes very academic for you. And therefore, you will never hear the gospel applied. And I will rob you of your hope that your hurt can be healed. Because that's what we've all got in common. We can deny it that we hurt, like I do. We can hide it. But the reality is God will never leave it in the dark because he wants us to heal. I asked for this song, Emmanuel, heal us, not because of you, because of me. If it's okay for me, hopefully it's okay for you. I never knew what misery likes company meant until this week. I always thought misery likes company meant that we all like to be around other miserable people. You know, people who've had similar experiences. Not really. Misery like company means you just know you're not alone. Because one of the things that hurt does is it isolates. It makes you want to be alone. And that hurts too. So misery does like company. The source of your hurt, the source of my hurt might be very different. In fact, you may not even know why you hurt. For a long, long time, I didn't know. You may not be able to locate your pain. So you just have learned to manage it. I've learned to manage mine. Mine is simply to hide. It has always been to hide. To give you an image that Maybe possibly you would like better. Or we try to medicate the pain. I'm not talking about necessarily drugs and alcohol. There are lots of ways to medicate pain. You know, this might surprise you. I did not go to seminary to become a pastor. Nowhere in my imagination was the idea that one day I'd be standing here. I went because I didn't know anything. 
So I thought seminary was a place where you could find a little bit about Jesus. And loved it. Loved the opportunity to go. But one of the things that I noticed that I really like is I like the medication of applause. Presbyterians don't applaud. I don't know if you've noticed. Maybe I should have picked our Baptist friends. But there's a, there's a, there's a medication in applause that really temporarily covers my soul in a way that very little else does. I'm not talking about accolades or awards, just simply appreciation. For some, just knowing that you hurt is enough because you know then you're still alive. There's a song, and as you know, I do like music. It was actually written uh, by the lead singer of Nine Inch Nails. The song is called Hurt. It really didn't become famous until someone who had a life that fit the song began to sing it, named Johnny Cash. You know, as long as Trent Reznor was singing the song, it became emblematic of suffering and pain in the world in a general sense, but not in a specific sense. It wasn't until somebody said, you know, there's a life out there that really fits this song. His whole life has been one of hurt. And if you've ever seen the video, you can go to YouTube and do that. And I really do, if you know anything. If you're too young to know who Johnny Cash is, just ask your grandparents. It's okay. Actually, it's very interesting He sang this song with Nine Inch Nails at one of their concerts. And it was great to see someone who is in his 80s was singing with people who were in their 20s about hurt. You you can sense his disillusionment as they were playing his life behind as he sang his disillusionment about all of his accomplishments and called it empty, where he said, my entire kingdom is nothing but dirt. And you can sense his guilt as he hurt people because he was hurt. He even predicted in the end, if you kind of remember, that he will let you down and hurt you. In the song, he this is the part that really grabs you. He begins to take responsibility, not just for for his hurt and not just for his hurt for other people, but did he cause the hurt of Jesus? You and I had a part in his hurt. You and I cannot play the victim card with Jesus because we victimized him. Nor can we atone for our own sins. The guilty can never clear their own name. I can't clear my name any more than I can erase my past. We can't confess our sins to the wrong kind of priest who cannot bring absolution. Well then, what can we do? Can there be a true healing? Or are we just left with medications 
and hiding. Our passage lays out for us the medicine. But that requires taking responsibility for Jesus' hurt. After Jesus was arrested, he was struck in the face. I struck him in the face. Peter denied Jesus three times. I denied Jesus. They flogged him. I flogged him. Verse 14, he picks up and he was, they crucified him. They cried out. I cried out too. Verse 16 through 18, the Romans put him on a cross. I put him there. In verse 23 and 24, the soldiers cast lots for Jesus. I cast lots for his clothes too. Verse 25 is the one that breaks my heart the most. Mary stood there and watched her son die. I made her suffer. After announcing it is finished, Jesus died in verse 30. And I killed Jesus. And so did you. You and I can never play the victim at the cross. We have to remember that we victimized him. We can never atone for our sins. Our only, a truly innocent victim can atone for the sins of others. Jesus is that innocent victim who brings healing because he says it's finished. For many of us here today, it's not finished, is it? We've never let it be finished. We've never said, that's it. It's done. We've not yet located the source of our pain and hurt. We've never opened the box that we've put it in and hope that it never affects. We so much identify with Lady Macbeth. Can you get the stains out of my hands? And even if you and I don't feel guilty, well, let me just put it this way. Even if you don't feel guilty for what you have done, all of us still hurt from what others have done to us. And he died for that too. And you might say, here's the one objection that you might have. And I can understand it. You weren't there. You're not responsible. You might think that Jesus' pain and your pain, they don't go together. It's a stretch in your mind. I just want you to know, he would have never come to this planet. He never would have been allowed to be inflicted that kind of pain on him if we weren't already in pain. If you and I had not hurt or hurt others, he would not have needed to come. And therefore, we're all responsible for the reason he came. That's why John says he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How? How does Jesus' hurt heal my hurt? I told you a couple of weeks ago, and I, I, I really do like this story, and I don't think Stephen King had any idea he was doing this. But he created a Christ figure for us in the story of John Coffey on the Green Mile. John Coffey, what did he do? He suffers for and with and in place of others. And he dies as the innocent victim. 
The Bible tells us on the cross, Jesus becomes the victim and the victimizer. We tend to only think that Jesus died for our sins. But he also died for the sins of others that inflicted on us. That's what Paul means when he says he became sin. So we can literally say that Jesus walked the green mile. Jesus was at Columbine. He was one of the little children who were shot. At the same time, he was there for the two boys who did the shooting. He was at Sandy Hook. He was on the 89th floor of the Twin Towers. He walked into the gas chambers at Auschwitz. He was at the, in the room that was dark except for a flashlight where a little boy read. Don't you understand? Don't I understand? Jesus took the bullet to the head for me. It's finished. I'm so grateful. That doesn't mean I always believe it. In fact, one of the reasons I love William Cowper, I so identify with him. He wrote some of the greatest poems that have become some of the greatest hymns in the church. God moves in mysterious ways. He believed him for everybody but for himself. It's not that I don't believe this. But if it's true, I no longer need to hide or cover or a thousand other little deaths I have experienced over the last 56 years. I can, we can, now live anew in the midst of finished work. Amen? But it takes a community. That's not something one person can do by themselves. That's why misery loves company. People who love each other enough to press in the healing grace of the gospel into the lives of the people who still hurt with all the grace and all the gentleness that we have, but firmly and frequently, that's community. Who doesn't want to be part of something like that? One of the reasons I don't wear a tie and the pastors are dressing a little less top-notch is we so much want to communicate that it is a comfortable place to be, that you can be accepted here and not wear a tie. Because one of the reputations we get is that we've got it all together. And one of the ways that we show we've all got it together is that we dress well. You should see me at night. One of the ways in which I have dealt with my past is I am a control freak. Now, that might surprise you. It doesn't surprise the staff. I was at 8 o'clock service, and somebody had moved a planter just out of the way, and I said, that really bothers me. So I moved it back. One of the ways that I'm a control freak is I pick my clothes out the night before 
And so then I make my poor wife come in and choose what I've laid out. You know, graminals were a great idea where everything just kind of matched up. That's just a humorous way to say there's not any area of my life that I don't try to control because I want to be perfect, even though I know I'm not. And that takes a community of people who are willing to come in and press in. We know you're not perfect. Now, I know you know, but when you say it, it actually has resonance. It actually weighs. As long as you remember the grace and the gentleness part. Will you do that for me? Because I'm willing to do that for you. That's community. All the rest of it that we do here, they're good stuff. But they're the trimmings. The meat is how we interact with one another and love one another well enough that we're healed. Amen? Let's pray. All right, enough. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Steve. What am I supposed to do next? Thanks. We're going to sing. What are we singing? Where is everybody? I don't have any more material. Sorry. Oh, pray. That'll be great. That'll give David time. Sorry, David. That was my fault. Maybe. Okay, let's pray. I am grateful that you are a gracious God who has provided for me and my family a gracious community but also frequently and firmly press in the gospel into my life, into the lives of their friends and their family and even strangers they meet in the room with all the grace and gentleness that you can give us. I know in this room I'm not the only person who hurts. And I know to shed light on brokenness is exhausting to the point where you can barely get up. I know. I pray that everyone in this room finds a group of people that they can say, this is my life. This is where it hurts. And that we rush in with grace. What a beautiful church you've created here. And I don't mean the building. I don't even mean the music that we sing. Just simply the work you've already done and will continue to do in us. We love you. 
because you first loved us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.